This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups, and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Hello, How are you doing today? I'm good. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to talk over you. <laughs> nope. We started at the exact same moment. So thanks for having me up. This is fun. Of course. Thanks for coming on the show. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization and what you're passionate about, and we'll, we'll go from there. Well, so uh, the passionate about part you're going to be sorry for. Uh, there are lots of things. Come on. Like it can't that. be that bad. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, it's all good. Just a lot of it. Uh, so uh, my name is Shannon Clude. I am currently the director of the Hattree Center for Innovation at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, although my industry, or my, excuse me, my career has really been divided between higher education and industry in ways we can talk about. Uh, in terms of things that I'm passionate about, uh, my wife sometimes says this is the reason I have a, uh, the resume of a schizophrenic, so I should probably choose okay, and uh, like that too. Mine's yeah, like, I, I, I should curate this list why carefully. Is so long? Why are there so many things <laughs> on here? <laughs> it, uh, it, it, there is a lot to talk about. So I, I will go small, believe it or not. Uh, I would say um, that uh, I love romance languages and more generally philology. I love film noir and both reading and writing throwback hard world mysteries. I love studio era filmmaking and poverty road B pictures. I love mechanical watches, motorcycles. Wait a, minute, wait, a minute, wait a minute, Poverty Road B pictures. What's your favorite? Yeah. Oh boy, that, oh, come on, that's top detour. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with detour. Detour. Uh, I've never heard of that one. Who who is oh, in that? Great, great film. Uh, you'll. I don't want to give anything away, but it's a great B noir uh, that was worked on by a lot of talent that went on to major studios. I am writing it down. I'm okay. gonna. I'm going to watch that. Home. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, and then I would say uh, mechanical watches, motorcycles, and essentially all forms of mechanical uh, technology that are kind of obsolete. With, um, no techn- with no electronics whatsoever, right? Like classic ideally. cars and stuff like that. Exactly. Yep. I'm with you. <laughs> so uh, my first car was a 50 Chevy half-ton pickup because I could kind of put my uh, legs over the inside of the, uh, the hood and just kind of sit there and work on it. Um, I love it. <laughs> Then I would say, uh, like everybody in my family, music, uh, but I am proof that uh, musical talent skips a generation. So uh, I have an uncle who's incredibly talented. He was married to Joni Mitchell, actually. Uh, she was wow. my aunt about the time I was born. Uh, and I got, you know, years of practicing a harmonica and I still can't make a tune. So, uh, and then, you know- You're not, you're not Elwood Blues. No, basically. I'm not. I'd love to be. Uh, <laughs> 
I think most importantly, and certainly in recent years, uh, I really do love education, higher education, the potentials of a lot of ed tech and instructional design, uh, more than the applications perhaps, but uh, those, are, those are important areas of interest. So, you know, I can see why my wife says what she does. I, I wouldn't call it a, a diverse set of passions with uh, certain core skills that are transferable. Uh, but it is true that um, I'm, I've always been fascinated by moments of transition and by products and paradigms that seem to break from the norm and suggest new opportunities. Um, and I've always enjoyed working across silos and industries to find points of intersection that seem to unleash new understandings and potentials. So that's exactly um, where innovation comes from, right? Is yeah. when you juxtapose these two things together or multiple mm -hmm. Well, I think juxtapositions are incredibly important uh, and that uh, one of the true sources of innovation is to really escape from any sort of disciplinary thinking uh, and to be sort of looking at the margins and the fringe cases. Uh, so yeah, all those things are important. Um, now, the, the outcome has not been as, as diverse as the passions might seem. Um, I've really worked primarily in two industries, higher education and entertainment media. Um, mm -hmm. And- uh, But it sounds know, like those, those industries can actually encompass your skill set, right? Because those things are very highly valued in, you, in those industries. Yeah, you know, uh, once I learned to sort of tell the right story about some of those skill sets, I would say that was true. Uh, like so many people who transition from a higher education industry, I think uh, initially framing that story in ways that mattered to industry was challenging. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's true. And, uh, you know, ultimately, there are certain things that have kind of tied together uh, my work in both places. Um, I've really sort of worked at the intersection of higher education, innovation, and brand strategy everywhere I've gone. And I've often focused on education to enterprise partnerships uh, with an, a kind of innovative instructional design and media in order to develop scalable educational engagements that improve learning outcomes uh, and lives of the target audiences while trying to serve a greater good. So those have been themes that have been true on both sides of, of the equation. Excellent, excellent. So you're, you mentioned in your note here that you said something about traditional models are still in vogue or valid. And I was talking to somebody just a little while, you know, a few shows ago, I don't know if you watched the, the show with um, um, Professor Jackson, I believe his name was. At, oh yeah, at no, I haven't watched it yet. And he was talking about how we need to bust up all this higher education stuff. You know, no degrees, no you know courses, and just like, what do you, what do you? So I want to hear your side of the story on this one. So this has been, I mean, it's been an interesting year. These there there have been some of these energies uh, and tensions building on the higher education for some time. I actually think for me, what this year has proven is that the traditional model is highly valued by the consumer, mm -hmm. um, but that what we're going to increasingly see is two competitive and divergent marketplaces uh, in education. So I think that we will see um, the emergence of stronger uh, sort of certificate programs and maybe even like two-year technical degrees offered mostly in digital formats. 
um, that will bring down the price of credentialing for uh, uh, those sorts of programs. Concurrently, I think we're going to see some of the people, some of the institutions that were in, in worse financial shape, traditional institutions uh, before the pandemic, um, start to get weeded out, but that we're going to see people really double down on the value proposition of place-based traditional education. Uh, and I say this for lots of reasons. Some of it is sort of anecdotal, uh, but in lots of conversations this year, um, I think there's been a misinterpretation of the, uh, the reasons and the value of the gap year. So a lot of people have been pointing to what's been happening this year with people taking gap years and seeing it as a proof that, that the traditional model is really being disrupted, that people don't see the value proposition. Uh, in those many conversations, what I've been seeing instead is that people don't want to pay uh, similar or uh, slightly lesser prices for something that is a digital alternative. And that instead they're choosing the gap here in order to really double down on being able to return to a full place-based experience. So I don't see that really being fundamentally challenged. And I think um, a big part of that is because people have really misunderstood uh, education as a product uh, like other products. And I think they've misunderstood how in American society in particular, it plays an entirely different role as well, which is hard to evaluate. And that is, it plays the role of a kind of transitional moment and a transitional rite of passage. Mm -hmm. And there's really no limit to the value people see in that. Um, it's that moment when you still have your youthful optimism and idealism, and it's, it's being coupled with, you know, sort of adult skills um, and perceptions of the world. And it, it, it's this incredibly value, valuable sort of idyllic moment that almost stands outside of uh, any other uh, moment or value proposition in your life. Um, I will also say that in American society, uh, one of the reasons it, this you know, traditional model has endured is that uh, American parents are not very good at adulting their children. And they really rely on the university to do that for them. And I Absolutely. think you know, it's like we're, we're both sort of chuckling as we say it for the podcast <laughs> listeners. They don't necessarily see, uh, but but it's it, there's some real truth to it. And I think that's um, one reason why uh, education has been delivered so differently in Europe and other places in the world uh, because it's professional development, almost you know solely intellectual development, certainly. But it's it's not yeah. this sort of um, cultural moment uh, that it is in American universities. And truth is, parents are, in many parents, are sort of ill-equipped in this fundamentally puritanical society to effectively help their, their children with this transition and count on universities to do it to a much greater extent than I think most of them would admit. That's interesting. So, That's you know, interesting. for both those reasons, the two primary, uh, you know, uh, consumers of education, those the people who are most likely to pay for the traditional product, I don't think they want to see it go away. Yeah. No, that's interesting you should mention that because I just had somebody on my show who was talking about lim liminal spaces, like liminal spaces in between right. things. So it's kind of like yep. if you think about it, going to university or going to college is like a it's like a rite of passage, right? It's a it's a it's a it's a 
you know, they used to throw their kids into the forest to see if they could survive. And if they right. got alive, you know, I, I, I've turned a boy into a man. So it's kind of like that, right? You're taking, you're taking these, these, they're literal children, really, when they're 18 they or something like that. Yeah. And then by the time they get out, they're adults. So they've gone through the process of adulting through mm-hmm. the higher education. And if you think yeah, about it, it's the ultimate, the other, yeah, if you do other things with them, and then they don't get the the benefit of that adulting mm-hmm. as part of it. So like the two year uh, boot camp, you know, coding boot camp kinds of things don't do that sort of thing, right? They just focus on the the skills required to become a developer, but it doesn't give you all the rest of the adulting stuff that comes out of the full full on classic edu- education. Right, which is you know not to take anything away from those programs that that uh, are incredibly right. valuable, and in fact, but think I would about it, those are actually additive, right? You want the full-on education, and then you need the additive piece for the for the pragmatic stuff. But sorry, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, no, it's interesting. That's an interesting point that you reframed it that way. I'm actually glad you jumped in because I was about to say um, they're sufficient unto themselves for doing certain certain things and supplying certain skill sets, but. Um, I suspect that one of the reasons that, uh, you know, two, two-year terminal degrees uh, have met with uh, some of the professional truths they have is because they can, they can impart all of those skills, but some of the uh, sort of social uh, skills that go along with a longer-term experience in a much more structured environment um, are, are hard to replicate through other uh, environments in American culture, I would say. Right. And, you know, if you look at the cost of education, what's really interesting to note is in recent years, how much the cost has gone up in a, of like student fees, and that's often criticized. But so many of the services associated with those are really the services we're talking about. They're psychological services, they're, um, you know, all sorts of social support networks. So I, I don't think they're unrelated topics. Yeah. And my youngest is going to Davis and you wouldn't believe the services that they're getting there. Of course, a lot of it's the other stuff is locked down, but it's like, right. do you really need all of this stuff for your four-year degree? Probably not. But, you know, as part of the whole preparing them for adulthood, it's mm-hmm. a different story, right? It's, it is. It's absolutely it, 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 that's right. And I do think the value proposition there becomes clearer. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the, the critics of the cost of traditional higher education will be the same ones who will criticize the breadth of some of those programs. But the truth is they're used. Um, and uh, the expansion in that direction has really been market driven. Uh, we go where students drive us to go. So when there's an expression of a need for those sorts of services, we're responsive. And I think that's one thing to, to point out is that um, higher education in a traditional model is much more market-driven and much more responsive than people think. It is not immune to the pressures of cost. The cost is a function of exactly where the market is driving it. And, uh, and there's still incredible perceived value in that. And, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in the value of higher education. So, um, you know, to go back to the other question of, you know, should everything be disrupted? I think everything should continually be rethought. Um, but at the same time, um, that doesn't have to be radically new. I think uh, a, an institution that delivers tremendous value in an incredibly traditional way is a place like St. John's College, which is an entirely great books program. But through critical reading and discussion, you can learn the whole panoply of skills um, that you can learn through more parsed out, uh, you know, skills-based education or, or yeah, uh, curricula. 
that kind of critical thinking should be taught earlier on. Like it should be taught in high school, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to get all the way to, to college to get to get that kind of thinking. Well, don't even, you know, this is a whole other can of worms, um, but I think it's part of a larger trend in this country. We're obsessed with uh, quantification. Mm-hmm. And uh, so long as that is the case, we will have a public education system that is easy to quantify. And, you know, there are pros and cons of such a system, right? And one of the cons is what you're mentioning, which is uh, it doesn't really value things that are complicated or messy because by definition, they're hard to measure. And uh, to me, of course, and maybe this is why I'm attracted to programs like this and conversations about innovation, it is the things that are messy and liminal, to your point, that fall in between that are almost always the most interesting and valuable in the long run. Right. So it sounds as if we've kind of absolved ourselves of the responsibility of raising our kids or adulting our kids. And we've pawned it off to the, to the college. Right. So it's just become it's become that. Or was it always that from the very beginning? You know, that's a great question. Um, I have, you know, an ultimately a limited historical perspective, but it's something that I've got some insight into because my father was a college professor, his college was, or father was a college professor and so on. So I've certainly uh, been the recipient of intergenerational wisdom on this. I do think um, that in just in my 20 years associated with higher ed in one form or another, I have seen the increasing involvement of parents in ways that has not helped kids to do some of this work on their own. You are um, so tactful. Uh, <laughs> Where did you learn this? Okay, they're helicopters. I love, <laughs> love how tactful you are. I hope your wife comments on it. Well, it's it's a tricky situation because the flip side of that is that um, you know the passion of parents has also been what has effectively stood in for the loss of certain services and resources in public education. So right. to some extent, parents have gotten so involved because we've cut back and cut back on funding the public education, and we've had to fill that gap with volunteer labor. The flip side is that there also seems to be a cultural trend in parenting that is very different. Um, and it's, it's hard to separate the extent to which those two are kind of you know, codependent trends. Well, there seems to be a disconnect between the cost of education and the actual providing of education. I mean, you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on some degrees, yet the schools are still underfunded. What's going on here? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, to, to On one side, I think it's the growth of services that students are demanding, uh, as you pointed out. Um, then you look at the trends of funding over the last few decades, and we are dedicating smaller and smaller portions of our budgets to uh, supporting education, generally speaking. Uh, and there are states and there are moments and there are programs that buck the trends, but I think you know generally that rule holds true. Um, and when it continues for too long, you start to see a, a whole lot of suffering. Um, states like Ohio have seen this recently. They really never reopened their funding after the last sort of recession, and suddenly they're at this crisis uh, where there are a whole bunch of public institutions that are having to be consolidated or closed. So... <laughs> You know, that's that's a very important trend. Um, th- those two are, are probably good starting points. But then I would also say 
Um, and this isn't to absolve higher education for, you know, from everything, because certainly there are lessons we could learn about running leaner on certain things. But I think another important trend that's raising the cost of everything is the litigiousness of our society. And uh, there are lots of uh, costs that get passed along because of uh, lawsuits that hit uh, everyone, uh, every sector. So uh, ultimately, somebody does pay for those things. So it just it's just expensive overall to live in this country, <laughs> to survive this country. Well, it's so interesting because I've lived overseas for extended periods. I used to be a, a professor of French and Italian because, you know, apparently that seemed like the, the straight you said path. said romance languages. To, I heard you. <laughs> that, that, it seems like the uh, the straight path to a career in innovation, I guess. So, you know, uh, but. Uh, you know, every person, everyone I know who's in a career in innovation has come at it from so many different angles. It's unbelievable. It's like. Well, every, it's like, funny. One of the. I, I have a couple of shows uh, that I do with uh, innovators in the Atlanta community. And uh, one of the, the things that people seem to say a lot is, well, if you want a career in innovation, don't talk to me. Like I'm the worst example. And that can't be true, right? Like when you hear it everywhere, it's got to be true that people who give bad advice about innovation are actually the people you should be listening to. But <laughs> that's probably a topic for another conversation. But it's, it's interesting that um, I've, I've lived a lot of uh, several years overseas and people tend to have a very rosy view of uh, the American economy and what life in America is about because they yep. see salaries and they think, oh, you get paid so much better uh, and your taxes are so much lower, but they don't understand the ways that we uh, add on the, to the cost of things. Uh, oh, yeah. With fees, oh, yeah. with all sorts of taxes, with um, and and to the and, and and how few public services you get in return. And so ultimately, you know, uh, it's you pay at one place or another. Yeah, I find it hard to, in fact, not just in education, but anywhere, like when people are saying, What's going on over there? I don't understand. Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? I'm like, Okay, America is not one country, it is 50 little right. countries. That just mm -hmm. happen to be associated with each other. But like, right. if you understand that, then you'll understand why we can't do anything blanket across the board, which is like everybody does the same thing. So it, it's right. easy to implement reforms in Singapore or or Italy yeah. or wherever, but here it's almost impossible to implement anything across the board. Well, and the other thing I would point out there is since I've kind of already pointed to a few kind of broader cultural trends as being impactful on, on that higher ed. We, uh, it's not just a political structural issue. We were literally founded by a bunch of people who could not be or could not stand being told what to do and how to live. Right. And that well, Americans are still like right? that. We, Americans we are still like, like that. that. And it <laughs> plays out in everything from, you know, our educational system to our public health discourse to our political institutions to, you yep. know, so there, are, there really aren't any surprises um, <laughs> in that sense. But it, it is surprising sometimes to, to people where, the, you know, who come from places where there is a greater ability to do things in a, a centralized fashion. And I will say, too, that um, I mentioned earlier, not to take all blame off higher education for cost, um, I do think that the decentralized function of higher education can sometimes be a detriment um, to its running lean, to its uh, kind of ability to make centralized, streamlined decisions in a timely fashion. Um, because it is true of all large organizations in this country, uh, industry, higher ed, nonprofit, you name it. We, uh, when you achieve a certain scale, I think you tend to decentralize certain decision-making functions or create 
uh, certain redundancies uh, of function across different silos that uh, that lead to some some of these challenges around cost. So when you were talking about white space in in uh, let's see, covering a white space in higher ed, what kind of what do you mean by white space? I mean, when I think of white white space, I'm thinking from a patent perspective. Like here's areas that have mm -hmm. not been uh, you you haven't applied any IP to those areas. What do you mean by white space in higher ed? So um, one of the things I've really been interested in all throughout my career is trying to, and I mentioned at the outset, trying to find uh, programs that are both scalable and deliver better outcomes. And so uh, I've given a lot of attention to over the years to kind of blending logics of say entertainment media and instructional design, that sort of thing. Um, and when, uh, when I stepped into this role and uh, really tried to initially decide, I did two sets of market research in a sense. One was internal. It was uh, sort of the, the landscape of innovation and entrepreneurship across Emory. The other was external. What does the landscape of, of higher ed innovation look like? And then I sort of identified uh, where there were gaps and where there were opportunities. Um, and so from the standpoint point of higher ed innovation, I would say that typically you see a few models very often. One is supporting student entrepreneurship. And often those sorts of centers are run under the auspices of a college of business. Um, you see uh, centers that uh, really support the commercialization of university IP. Uh, and often those are at the university level and a lot of times focus on industry partnership. Uh, and then you see a lot of innovation around centers of teaching and learning. And we are sort of unique in that the Hantry is an initiative of the office, the provost. And as such, it's focused on uh, the academic side of the house across the board for all schools. So uh, as you probably know, the provost's office focuses on uh, the faculty side, rank and tenure, et cetera, but also on the student uh, curricular side. And so we saw an opportunity to leverage innovation and service of the full student, their, their personal and professional development. And so we've sort of shorthanded this internally as innovation for student success. And this may be where my marketing and uh, sort of innovation program development backgrounds meet, but I almost think about the center and its programs like a bigger front end of the funnel in an acquisition campaign. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't support full spectrum development. It just means that we have an opportunity with a center like this, which you can see behind me, it's a beautiful space, to really get people interested in innovation, help students from every program understand that it's for them, that it is not just the same thing as entrepreneurship and it's not just for B-school students. Um, and to really uh, get them involved, get them understanding core processes of innovation and the myriad ways they can apply those to problems they want to solve in the world. And that can be everything from sort of hacking their own educational outcomes during their next four years on campus to undertaking sort of uh, innovation capstone experiences that allow them to get in the community and uh, try to use innovation for social impact and the common good. Uh, and through such experiences to develop a whole suite of professional soft skills around innovation, effective team building, diverse thinking uh, that they can apply professionally throughout their careers. So I think the most important thing here is that everybody sees innovation for them. Secondarily, that they acquire a suite of core skills uh, through innovation work that they can apply broadly. And then ideally, they would also get deeply involved in our programs and, and have one of these sorts of experiential learning experiences 
But you know, if we accomplish even the first two for the bulk of the students, I think we'll be sending them out uh, into the world with uh, a combination of deep disciplinary expertise and uh, broader thinking and collaborative skill sets that empower them to succeed professionally and personally. That's interesting. When you talked about hacking your own degree, how? I, I guess I can't hack it too much because there's still like requirements, right? I can't make it it's like totally out, out the out the uh, out the window. Well, you'd be surprised. Um, even inside of a program that's got quite a few core requirements, there there's always flex. Um, there are always those. Uh, you know, electives, and there's an opportunity to help people to see connections between programs or fields of study, um, and also to help people, I think, approach similar problems from this different disciplinary perspectives. And so if you can get them in that right program mix, then there, there are a surprising number of opportunities, I think, to design their research and their outcomes in ways that really exceed the bounds of, of just any one discipline narrowly. And to my mind, as you said earlier, it's really the core of, of innovation is to be able to see things from multiple perspectives, to be able to see it need and match uh, various and inventive processes to that need uh, and, and test those until you find a solution. So you said something very interesting earlier, and I don't remember the exact word, but you were talking about outside of the U.S., uh, educational systems outside of the U.S. So, I mean, I think most educational systems here, whether it's higher ed or wherever you are, we're, we're creating people who are supposedly going to go get a job, right? They're going to go get some work, right? But it's not the same elsewhere. You're saying that there was, there was, there was a term that you used, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's like, are, we, are, are they training people, are they training students for, to do something else outside of the U.S.? No, I, I, you know, it's funny. It might be the first part of that assumption that I'd, I would question. Okay. Um, a lot of the pressure is on developing people who are career ready. But in truth, I think a lot of what universities in the US model do is, is much broader than that. And I think that then goes back to this discussion about the, uh, you know, the value of the traditional place-based model, the whole suite of skills and personal development that, that uh, occurs on a, a campus setting. Um, and I believe that European institutions by and large in my experience, uh, are very focused on, uh, on the content. And so that can be professional content. It can be, you know, whatever your field, um, but they don't feel the same need to play that bigger role of developing the whole person. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, uh, the classroom feels in some ways like a very different place. But I think the term you just used now is career readiness. And I think I remember hearing my oldest say something like, why can't we just go to, to university to educate ourselves? Why do we have to always, you know, learn to do something that makes us career ready? So, I mean, do you ever see like a, a pivot to learning? Well, from learning? I, I agree with your, your eldest. So I guess that's what I'm saying <laughs> is that too many of the market pressures are on career readiness. And, you know, I really worry um, that, that that would be what we would aspire to in a higher education. But, but it is, right? I mean, everybody's well, it is. It is. now. It's like and the only it, thing that, that, that counts anymore, almost. Well, unfortunately, I think that's becoming increasingly true. But there are some great futurists of education, like Heather McGowan, who has pointed out that, uh, you know, as workplaces get increasingly disruptive, the idea that a higher education should be for specific 
training and career readiness becomes kind of more absurd because entire industries and careers disappear practically overnight as they're displaced oh, yeah. by things, right? Mm-hmm. And that increasingly, um, you know, her point has been that the STEM s- uh, skills that we're so focused on in, uh, in public education right now were incredibly important for building out the vast infrastructure of the third industrial revolution, right? All these huge, you know, uh, machine systems. But as we move into this fourth industrial revolution of interconnected human machine systems increasingly governed by AI, it's the distinctly human skills that will become the most employable again. And so I actually see a reappreciation and a valuation of the humanities moving forward. I think there's a huge opportunity and then in the humanities, we need to stop sort of apologizing and trying to make a case for how they prepare you for career readiness, because ultimately career readiness is the narrower optic and the broader optic that's gonna be important is uh, you know, continual uh, lifelong learning, continuous self-innovation and professional innovation of your own, you know, career path. And it's those humanistic skills that are really going to prepare you for that. It's the creativity, it's the communication skills, uh, it's the critical thinking. It's all the things that are really uh, difficult to acquire, not impossible, certainly, but difficult through a, a professional studies track that is too narrowly focused on career readiness. Yeah. No, I agree with you. In fact, I think they were surprised the other day, or it was like, it's months ago now that Google was hiring all these people in humanities because they needed people, you know, who were outside of STEM. And now people are panicking. I was like, oh my God, we're pushing all these people into STEM when we don't really need STEM graduates well, anymore. And we do, and we will continue to for, for a time. But one of the things you mentioned is that this show often tries to think about 10 years from now. And I really do see a reversal there where you're gonna start to see more and more of a decline in demand for traditional narrowly defined STEM skills. You're gonna see more STEAM and more humanities uh, really in vogue and in need. You know, and, and, and keep an eye on folks like Google and Apple because they put the pressures on the educational market with things like these new uh, degree programs. You might've seen the announcement this week of Coursera and Google teaming up around these certification programs. Um, but simultaneously, they're hiring the deeper humanities thinkers for their own work. And so this is, I think, another proof of this, this idea that you're going to see two increasingly divergent marketplaces. And the problem is we're calling both of them post-secondary ed or higher education. And really, they're increasingly diverging, I think. Uh, and you're creating, uh, you're creating two different types of products. And we just happen to be calling them by some of the, the same names. And as long as we do that, people are going to continue to say, oh, higher ed needs to be fundamentally disrupted. It's overpriced. But I think we're not talking about the same thing. But there's always this disconnect between between what the what these what these companies want and what higher ed is providing. There's that disconnect's always there, but it sounds like it's the gap is closing. Well, yes. Or another way to put it is that uh, Apple is convincing us that uh, the future of education is app based, but they're all sending their children to Waldorf schools, right? Right. Like there's the maybe more cynical <laughs> uh, version of it, but yes, this, your this, point's this, well I'm going to do a show just on disconnects because there's so many disconnects. <laughs> Well, you know, disconnects in by industry would be a wonderful one, uh, you know, because I think, uh, for example, another great uh, demonstration of that would be uh, the recent emphasis on innovation within industry, 
And there's a fundamental disconnect there too, right? Because you want this hockey stick growth, but fundamentally you're geared towards slow, steady progression and a, a very established model. So yeah. that's another one. That's why you get innovation theater. And I'm assuming there's no innovation theater at uh, Emory, right? You guys are right on the ball. Everything well, you know, <laughs> we all play our parts. Uh, no, what I would say is this has been one of the really interesting things about the pandemic for us. So the hatchery actually opened to the public two weeks before we had to close. Oh, so, wow. uh, and people have said, oh, what a bummer. And well, sure, from an awareness standpoint. But the truth is, it's forced us to actually practice innovation because uh, we couldn't just step into a role of like offering a suite of innovation programs and count on the facility and the materials here to kind of carry us through. We had to do everything through human-centered design. And we said, okay, our end users are our students. We have to, to rethink everything. We scrapped literally overnight every program we had anticipated. We uh, created a whole bunch of focus groups. We figured out what was important to students during remote learning. And then we started to, to spin up and test our MVPs, which in our case were minimum viable programs. And as quickly as we could, we just spun up new programs and, and tested whether they were really solving for the needs that students had identified. Um, and then we did deeper dives over summer when things slowed down. We uh, hired innovation interns and we trained them on a lot of these processes and turned them loose to do peer-to-peer -peer discovery work um, to get, you know, kind of truer peer-to-peer -peer answers around what was really uh, plaguing people. And then we use those insights to uh, both, uh, you know, drive our own programmatic calendar for the fall and to report out to the university as a whole listen, if you apply innovation to programmatic design and you're serious about innovating your curriculum, here are some of the things you might find. And of course, it's easy for me to say that because we're co-curricular and there are obviously bigger challenges with curricular programs uh, that have to do with accreditation and other things. You can't pivot as dramatically and as quickly, but um, it's been, a, in some ways, the pandemic has been a, a wonderful thing for making us actually practice what we preach and for uh, making it clear to students that uh, we're really serious about coaching what they're interested in and uh, trying to help you know, ensure their success. Oh yeah, I find that, I mean, a lot of times you don't actually get change unless there's some kind of crisis, right? I mean, right. if the crisis doesn't happen, the change doesn't occur. It's almost like if I, you know, a lot of people, won't, they won't stop smoking until they have a heart attack or, you know, right. we won't stop commuting until we all have to stay home. So. It's, it's true. And, you know, what's really interesting to me, I think, after a disruption this big, which is, you know, unprecedented in our lifetimes, is which things will we return to? Um, I think this is going to be fascinating. And I'm still seeing students insist on the value proposition of returning to campus and, you know, face-to-face -face instruction. It's not entirely because the method of instruction is so much greater. It's the environment that comes with it. And one of the things they've mentioned uh, really missing is all of the learning that happens through the kind of informal meetings in a college setting. So there's value yep. in that setting too, that again, you know, ed tech is not going to disrupt. Uh, That's right. Because right now, all of our communications are intentional, right? I have to make this call. There's no such thing as an intentional unintentional communication. There's no serendipity. Everything's got to be controlled. So that we're missing a lot of that stuff. And we don't really know how much of that we're missing because we don't really track it, right? That's right. And, and really, how would you? 
Right. So, uh, um, you know, one of the, the most interesting things for me to think about this year as you reevaluate metrics and what metrics of success look like during a pandemic uh, is also what would what would be the metric and how would you track it for uh, like, uh, you know, uh, opportunity cost uh, for all the things that got lost um, from this kind of loss of kismet and happenstance. Right. So let's see the thing. I, I, the thing that kind of a little bothers me about higher ed is that it's monolithic nature, and you you make it sound like that monolithic nature is not going to go away. There's no there going to be a situation where it's just broken up into points. And, and it's you you mentioned lifelong learning over. Here. Is there some way to combine the like demonolithize <laughs> higher ed? And, I don't even know if that's a word. And then like. Do it more of a life, do it more of a, as a lifelong thing. So if I like, if I'm on a Stanford degree, I mean, why can't I start taking it in halfway through high school or even earlier and then like stretch it into, you know, my work life or whatever. And then I get it over like 12 years or, or, or 20 years instead of, yeah. instead of this, this compressed four year, six year period. Well, I do think we're going to see a lot more experimentation in that sense, uh, even setting aside the question of ed tech and uh, the, the growth of online degrees around kind of professional credentials and accreditations. Um, I do think that we'll see uh, more experimentation with the delivery of the traditional model, but I would say that it is far less monolithic than it might appear. Um, I think that uh, that is, again, part of the redux that is, is part of the strategy of its detractors, um, because if you can criticize that as monolithic, non-responsive, overpriced, uh, it's, it's a real easy target. Um, right. But if you look under the hood of uh, you know, any given institution, you're gonna see incredible diversity uh, in, in programs, but also in the way those programs are offered and delivered. And ultimately, a lot of that depends on the breadth of the human diversity inside the academy. Uh, it is an incredibly diverse employer and uh, people forget that, I think. Yeah. Um, they, one of the other critiques you hear is it's nothing but radical leftists. And of course, that's also not true, right? It's a, it's a very- I the other day reciting the, the ratio of left to right within a higher ed. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize it was that bad. <laughs> Well, it, it, you know, it really depends on programs. It depends on institutions. It depends on states. It depends on a lot of things, right? Um, I do think it's important to have institutions that protect a professional class of stone throwers, or else pretty soon we're all going to be inside the glass house and we're going to have lost our perspective. Yeah, um, right. So you know what I mean, uh, and, and I, I feel like stones at everybody else. Come on. <laughs> well, but it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the institutions that used to kind of pr provide that cover for those classes of of professional stone throwers are being commercialized in ways where that's gone away. Journalism would be a good one to point to, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of a lot of forms of media as we become more uh, data driven in our media production and delivery, um, we, we do less of the kind of hard hitting uh, content production that, that could have you know, played that role as well. So you know, I, I am a defender of higher education, obviously on a lot of fronts, but that doesn't mean I don't think it needs to evolve with the times. Um, but I, you know, from where I sit, um, you gotta be careful about that because if you say we need to evolve with the times, career readiness, 
Well, yeah. 20 years from now, you might have produced a lot of uh, pre-professional uh, tracks, and that's where all your majors are. And suddenly we learn in this fourth industrial revolution and all this AI, you know, these AI guided systems that we needed to be teaching literature, creative thinking, empathy, the arts. And, you know, I'm teaching that already. We should be teaching all that stuff. I mean, come we on. Should we should be. And so, you know, I it's it's one of those things where I think there are um, there are, there's some truth that we need to continue to try to figure out ways to be responsive. But there are also advantages to being a slow mover when you're a, a cultural cornerstone in some ways. So let's let's be honest. What is there? So what's happening with free speech within higher ed right now? I mean, is it still? Like, is everyone still free to question and, and have different viewpoints? Or is there still that sort of, there's still a bit of a chilling effect going on? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. I sit on the co-curricular side and I'm really student focused. So I have a different perspective than I did when I was faculty, uh, certainly. I would say that the situation is better than detractors would say. Again, mm -hmm. such an easy target, right? Uh, so that, I do think that people in higher education uh, try to take the protection of free speech for all people very seriously. Um, I do think that uh, industries tend to have skews and within the industry skews, you start to see protections of certain types of free speech, right? right. And certainly, you know, uh, media gets a lot of criticism in one direction. Uh, you know, you might say oil and gas gets a lot of criticism in another, right? So I think it would be unfair to, to, to say that it's, you know, the only industry that really skews uh, in, in one side of this issue. But I, I do see a lot of people taking it very seriously. And there's a lot of debate about it right now as there is in our larger culture. My perspective would be that it's been a cultural loss more than an institutional loss. And again, it probably sounds like I'm deflecting a lot of these things. But what I've seen in the last 10 years is the, the deadly combination of curated media feeds and instantaneous receipt of media. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a situation where you not only can curate your consumption and all of the, the things that surround you and your friends networks and everything else, but you um, it's actively done for you based on decisions you've made in the past, it gets really hard to get people to value broader and more diverse opinions. And, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is a fundamental division in two in this country. And, uh, you know, uh, algorithmic media combined with a two-party system. And uh, that starts to um, really pollute every environment. So even in, you know, in industry, people start to say, well, that industry is too liberal. And the response is, well, that industry is too conservative. But yeah. there's, would you show me the, show me where people are saying, oh, that industry is so perfectly harmonious and balanced. Yeah. I love that it's 50-50. And, it's just you like know, food, right? I mean, the news is like, everyone thinks the, everyone that thinks the news happens all the time, like whatever they report is happening all the time, but it's really the exceptions that are being reported. And if right. the re exceptions are reported over and over and over again, so often people think that's the rule, but the right, reality right. is it's not as bad as people are saying that it is. It sounds that's like there right. is some, some critical thinking inquiry, that stuff goes on. It's just that all we're hearing about is the egregious 
issues, the, the stuff that bubbles up to the top. That's and right. I think you're right. I think social media is at the base of all of this because it, it forces us to live in these bubbles. And it's so much more e- easy to have pit two things against each other than to have all this gray. That's right. And remember, you know, what sells most sex and fear. Um, So, you know, really, we're always creating those kinds of tensions with all of our media decisions. Um, But I do think that the two party system in this country combined with that algorithmic reality um, has been particularly disastrous. And I think, you know, people say, well, you know, Europe, the reason these things aren't happening is because they're more enlightened. I say, no, they've just got like 70 parties in some places. Show me how you can orchestrate that level of angst, disagreement, and, you know, political action when everybody's sitting around, you know, parsing out, wait, now, what does that acronym even stand for? I lose track of my party. Think about it, because they have 70 parties, they need like to to do a coalition of like 30 of them just to get anything done. So they, you know, or to get a majority in in, any, in any body. Right. So, and that is a hallmark of a lot of European systems is coalition building. uh, Once you've seen election results, well, we don't have that. We have an all or nothing us versus them. Um, And I think that's really infecting our public public discourse in a whole lot of ways. And unfortunately it's um, it's impacting the ways we see entire sectors which then in turn really impacts where we're seeing opportunities. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for disrupting higher ed like other industries, but I'm really fearful of the ways most people want to disrupt it. I guess yeah. that's really my key takeaway. Okay, so let's talk about the future. You were mentioning something about the future work in your notes, but did you want to talk about the uh, like 10 years out, 2031, where will we be? Well, uh, so higher ed specifically or kind of generally? Either one. Okay. I want to say that uh, I see a trend that needs some attention, which is that uh, push logics continue to be eroded by pull logics. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that, and it goes hand in hand with the whole conversation around our digital realities as well, um, all of the traditional thinking, whether it's business thinking or media thinking about we produce it, we push it through established networks, we market it to get people to consume it at the levels we want, all of that thinking is dead. And I would argue that this is the biggest reason that that large industry is getting disrupted, right? And scale itself used to be sufficient safeguard against this kind of disruption, right? Think of companies like, you know, GE, uh, which, you know, seems like it could never really, uh, you know, decline. Uh, Instead, what you have is all of this is being displaced by pull logics, where increasingly people have access to uh, you know, connections with people all over the world. They're able to find and friend their own networks who think like them, act like them, want the same products as them. And then that exerts market pressures in ways that uh, really the end user becomes the originator of a product in many ways. So think of a couple of industries like uh, entertainment media would be a great example, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the SVOD trend has put incredible pressure on the cable industry. And it's not an accident that folks like, you know, uh, AT&T bought, uh, you know, Turner and became Warner Media um, because traditionally you had uh, a hard divide between the people who created the content and the people who distributed it and had all of the consumer metrics. Well, then ASFAD comes along and it brings those two things together. And suddenly you know exactly what everybody's watching for how long, where they stopped it, what they moved to after that. And then lo and behold, you can spin up your own studio like Netflix, and then you can start yep. to create the lower cost alternatives to all these shows from these other producers, et cetera. 
So where um, big entertainment companies are, are focusing is on sort of data insights uh, and kind of streamlining those processes and uh, bringing a lot of those SFOD expertise in-house. Um, but they're also, at least the ones that I think are really smart, are focusing increasingly on understanding their fans and co-involving them in the production process, making the end users part of the, the solution of origin. So uh, um, here's a great use case would be something that I saw about 10 years ago. You got kind of a, a divergent approach to uh, media IP and you had the BBC that came out and launched this incredible sandbox. And then sequentially, they taught their fans to uh, start to write screenplays, to start to produce short form content, to interact with their, their media assets. And then they launched this kind of sandbox and out of it, their fans started to produce these incredible promos. But of course, lo and behold, they also created ships or relationships where they were mashing up characters from different shows. And then BBC was like, oh, well, there's a new content solution. And they started creating shows that were these mashups, et cetera. At the same time, the whole Harry Potter sensation came out and people started doing incredible fan works, uh, you know, across the digital world. And uh, Warner Brothers went after him and sued everybody for IP and sent cease and desists. And, and then, you know, fast forward and look at, at the kind of success that the BBC approach has had by co-involving, you know, the fans in every aspect of. Yes, of but, yes, but, yes, but. Yes, but. I mean, yes, isn't that exploitation, but. though? Isn't that exploitation? It's like the tail, it's like these, the big head content is coming in and exploiting the tail to get new ideas. And then they're hardly compensated at all. And they go off and create new stuff out of this. I mean, I, well, I've seen it before. Possibly, with possibly like, but it, if it's a case of fan empowerment, um, I've seen a lot of consumers feel genuinely empowered by being consulted, uh, brought in for show development, et cetera. So, and in many cases, compensated as well as consultants or as, so, um, you know, there there is definitely a balance there and you have to be careful. But, um, you know, the, the companies that are taking fandom seriously and are seeing it as an opportunity to co-own a brand, I think that's another trend that is going to be really important is that the power of brands will be increasingly determined by how invested consumers feel in that brand. And right. when they genuinely feel like they are co-owners of the brand and the content that it creates and that brand, that brand, I think will really break through. So no, I, would, I love that as long as, life. as long as the tail folks, as long as the fans get properly reimbursed for the amount of work that they put into it. Right. Yes. It seems yeah. to me that there's, this is what happened with Apple podcasts. It's like they sucked a whole bunch of podcasts into Apple podcasts to try and load their, um, load their library full of podcasts because I've been a podcaster for a really long time. And then mm -hmm. they went and marketed and say, oh, look, we have thousands and thousands of podcasts. But then, you know, that head content came in and said, oh, great, we, you've, you've pulled in our audience. Now we can come in and take over, right? right. So it seems like a, a cyclical thing where, you know, the, the tail, the people who create the tail stuff, they need to be brought into the conversation and they need to be properly remunerated for that. Otherwise, I think it's a little exploitive. Well, it's an interesting thing. I see a little distinction in the two use cases that could be useful. One is fandom implies there's already, um, uh, you know, IP. So if you're bringing in somebody that's a fan of your shows, that's a little different than bringing in original content. 
And I would agree with you that the, the Apple approach to that and to news has been really problematic. You know, news has received a lot of, of uh, criticism lately. And every day they serve me up suggested readings. And of course, if you click through, it takes you into the Apple News uh, environment and it tries to make you pay. Well, so what I do is automatically, I cut and paste the headlines and I go out and search them on Google. And I read them <laughs> on the original format. And I, decide if I, want to give, I want to decide if I want to give those people my money um, rather than giving it to Apple. Um, so, you know, there are things we can do to curate our own experience. So I do, I think there's a difference there. And that, what you're pointing to, is a, a bigger trend and problem to me that in the digital era, artists have become content creators. And this, this kind of, you know, defanged word of content, it's mm. just this, it's this corporate vanilla that makes us feel okay about robbing everybody's intellectual property. So I yeah. think you make a great point there, too. No, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. But how can we, can we deal with that? I mean, is there a way to get around that? I guess we can't. Well, no, I'm seeing, I think we can't. I think there's incredible opportunity for innovation in this space. And I think blockchain is going to be part of the solution. Um, so you're seeing a lot of uh, new media platforms emerging that are trying to uh, distribute more of the value back to the original artists, as they call them. They usually resist are this you creating idea any of content creators. Uh, what's that? No, no, not currently. But I did recently speak with an Emory alumnus who uh, is just a couple years out of his undergrad, and he already has a startup that was purchased by the Winklevoss brothers. Um, oh, fantastic. It's called Nifty Gateway. And it was the first sort of uh, nifty backed um, digital art place, uh, you know, um, uh, shopping platform. So you can kind of go and uh, purchase your, your, your nifties. And uh, so it is, it is driving, uh, there are ways to drive more of the, the value back to the artists. And that's a trend that I'd really like to see um, is the solutions that do that rather than the solutions that drive so-called um, ease um, of use to the consumers. I'd like to see more people disrupt that and figure out yeah. solutions that can be smaller. They don't require the same amount of scale and still drive value back to the, the content folks. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of all of that to be able to put, do, make that happen. So is there anything else you want to talk about the future of work? I know we have a few minutes left. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've covered it all in uh, broad strokes. I think um, I would say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, continue to carry a torch for the humanities. I think that, uh, these humanistic skills are crucial to innovation work. Um, they're crucial to the kind of critical thinking that helps you to draw uh, from these various disciplines and kind of uh, look across these uh, interstices for opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, that kind of, they're, they're one way to, to help people really uh, teach the human value uh, as, as in a higher education. So innovation is not a STEM STEM topic. It's definitely I think not it's a STEM topic. Identity. It's uh, I still think, you know, it's not to, uh, to denigrate the steam or the STEM parts of it. I think those, those fields are all crucial. And I see a lot of people in the sciences who, uh, you know, have very humanistic concerns. Right. So, um, I was, I was probably, uh, oversimplifying a bit, but, uh, you know, I think we need to re-inject the, uh, the A and steam. Yeah. Let's be steam powered I, moving I forward. I love those old, those old mechanical technologies to bring it uh, full circle. Let's be steam yeah. powered. 
and we should forget about the word content and just call them all artists because artists. it's art. They're all creating art, <laughs> whether it's a artists YouTube creator. That's right. <laughs> creators is another great one. It, it really, you know, that's an empowering term. Content creator alone is like, yeah, yeah. let's just all be creators. <laughs> I creators. love it. Love it. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. So I'll put your contact information in the show notes. So is there anything else you want to close off with or we're we all good? No, I appreciate the conversation, Chris. This is a fun show. I've, uh, I enjoy that you speak with people from so many different industries and get such diverse perspectives. I think that's really important. I don't think enough shows uh, really cross over in such a broad fashion. So thanks for doing right. this. Well, thank you so much. All right. Take Talk care. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye.